0: Saturday, the 14th of November this year, marked the 25th anniversary of the death of my uncle, Malcolm Muggridge, in 1990. Malcolm, like his father, Henry Thomas Muggridge, found his final resting place in the churchyard of a beloved and off visited church, St. Mary Magdalene, Watlington, near Battle in East Sussex. Now, Watlington is a village in which not only Malcolm and his wife, Kitty, once lived before the war, together with their four young children, but also Kitty's parents. Rosalind Dobbs, Kitty's mother, was a sister to Beatrice Webb. Kitty's grave lies in the churchyard with Malcolm, and it is just worth recalling that she was the British ladies' ski champion of 1924 and an author of several books in her own right. She was also a favourite aunt of mine. Elsewhere in the churchyard, close to the grave, of Henry Thomas Mugridge, my own mother and father also have their ashes laid to rest. So Watlington Church has always retained a close affection to me and my family, and I was delighted to take their normal morning service and address the congregation there to mark the anniversary. I am also recording the address made at my own church of St. Stephen Walbrook for a larger audience worldwide, those with an interest in the life and work of Malcolm Muggeridge with the passing of the years the number of people who knew Muggeridge well avidly read all his prodigious literary output or worked with him or wrote about him and that is reducing obviously this is likely to present the last occasion to recall and to commemorate the life of a journalist who came to be not just a world famous radio and TV personality of the 1950s through to the 1980s, but was also acknowledged as one of the foremost writers of the 20th century. The November of 25 years ago was a feverish political period. Malcolm Mugridge died as the newspapers were reporting Geoffrey Howe's remarkable resignation speech in the House of Commons, which had taken place the previous day. The media was speculating about Maggie's chances of surviving in office as she found herself increasingly at odds with senior members of her cabinet. That speech sparked a leadership challenge and in due course the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. How appropriate that a journalist who had made his reputation reporting on the major news events of the previous 60 years should make his exit at such a time. And how, in earlier days, would he have relished being in the public or press gallery and to join in the speculation? So this, then, was the background media chatter when we learned that Malcolm Mugridge had finally entered that other world for which he had long yearned rather too impatiently. For all his life, Malcolm had been a communicator, what St Augustine called a vendor of words, His own words had been tapped out on a typewriter, shouted down a telephone, mouthed from a platform, scribbled by hand, spoken into a microphone, recorded on tape or film. As Malcolm himself described, words, 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 millions of them, particles of spray momentarily caught in the sunlight and then falling back into the ocean from whence they came. Sonorous leading articles, trivial gossip paragraphs, pompous obituaries, news stories from our special correspondent, exhortation, speculation, every variety of composition. A positive Niagara of words frothing and churning on their tumultuous course. Of course, Malcolm was only too aware that the newspapers and magazines carrying this daily torrent would all too soon be used for wrapping fish or stopping up broken windows. Their historic function, he asserted, was not so much to inform as to provide a minefield through which politicians learned to tread very warily. My uncle had a varied and turbulent life, somewhat too long to cover in any detail, from a socialist boyhood in Croydon to his hedonistic college days at Cambridge from teaching stints in India and Cairo to his career as a writer and journalist experiencing Britain, Russia, and again India in the 1930s. In the Second World War, he served MI6 well as an intelligence agent, then joining the Daily Telegraph as Washington correspondent when peace returned. Coming back to London as deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph, he progressed to becoming editor... The satirical magazine Punch. However, this was always a world in which he felt himself to be an outside observer rather than a participant, the gargoyle on the steeple looking down with amusement on the world below gone totally mad. He saw that the world was in a state of great flux, that the established order was irrevocably changing. One can view his first 50 years as a disconnected series of high adventures, punctuated throughout with exotic liaisons laced with bouts of depression. There was always a somewhat restless, self-destructive urge in Malcolm Muggeridge, a need to move on. However, a new age of media beckoned, and by the mid-50s he was becoming established as a radio and television celebrity. At a time of there being relatively few personalities, he certainly had a face and voice that enabled him to become recognised around the world. He reported on television programmes such as Panorama and was in steady demand as an interviewer or panel member, indeed appearing on BBC's Any Questions for over 35 years or enjoying joining in the satire of That Was The Week That Was. But my uncle's most enduring and admired work deals with the subject of morality and faith. While Malcolm Mugridge did not ever regard himself as a theologian, he was to become a man with an unshakable conviction in a living Jesus, conscious of a spirit that animates and guides our human existence. Life, he came to claim, was a gift of God. He wrote lectured and broadcast about Christianity and the ethical problems confronting a modern world and he was brilliant in doing so. Never lost for a word, the sentences he delivered in response to a question were always well crafted, often poetic in their quality and resonance. He challenged his readers to a new thinking. Here's an extract. I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence, has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it were ever possible, to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross, more than anything else, that has called me inexorably to Christ. What seemed to Malcolm at the time as most significant and seductive He later came to regard as most futile and absurd. Exercises in self-gratification in retrospect were to be seen as pure fantasy, diversions designed to distract attention from our true purpose, which is to look for God and in looking to find him and in finding him to love him. Only in this way, Malcolm asserted, do we establish our harmonious relationship with his purposes for his creation. His words and sentiments were ones to which many around the world found they could readily relate. Like an evangelist, he brought people, including myself, to an awareness of God and a fuller consciousness of a spiritual dimension in our lives. Malcolm Muggridge is best remembered here in the UK as a journalist and broadcaster. Numerous articles in newspapers and magazines programs and documentaries on radio and television. However, for those who appreciate literary style, his religious books are the most lasting legacy. For whilst his writing on politics has only brief relevance, politicians come and go and events move on, Mugridge's output on the questions of faith and ethics emanates from a very fine mind and possesses a uniquely brilliant journalistic style. His writing is also often very entertaining. Indeed, it is as a writer that he is primarily remembered in the United States. In particular, in the more Catholic agenda of conservative America, he established himself as a staunch and vocal defender of life, an active campaigner against euthanasia, abortion, birth control and embryo research, a respecter of the sanctity of life, not just its quality." He saw many of these issues as embarking on the slippery slope to eugenics. Mugridge later said he found important moments of revelation, illumination as he describes it, whilst making religious documentaries. He witnessed the faith of others and it awakened his own faith. He also expressed a growing disillusionment with the 20th century utopian dreams and the more permissive age being ushered in by the swinging 60s. By this time, he was mainly writing articles on religious rather than political themes, and to do this had adopted a changed lifestyle based on abstemiousness and asceticism. In 1969, Jesus Rediscovered was published, a collection of various writings and interviews on faith and spiritual matters and it instantly became a popular purchase. The book was a sellout. The media quickly dubbed Mugridge with the sobriquet Saint Mug. He followed it up with another, Jesus, the man who lived, which is a gospel commentary. We might say it is the gospel according to Saint Mug. An admirer of Bunyan and Pilgrim's progress, Mugridge had frequently likened himself in writing as a 20th century pilgrim on a spiritual journey of discovery and revelation. And over the past few years, as his niece, I have been discovering for myself just how much Malcolm Muggridge's life did represent a pilgrimage, always like Christian, with a constant need to hurry on, always seeking answers to fundamental questions of man's existence, and hoping, perhaps finally, to see the holy city set on a hill. The headstone over his grave in the Sussex churchyard bears the suitable epitaph, Valiant for Truth, from the character in Pilgrim's Progress. He had clearly moved on from being Mr. Worldly Wiseman. While books and articles are easy to preserve, in attempting to build a legacy through a literary society, One quickly comes to realise that there was a danger in losing access to some key religious documentary work shown on television, such as Paul, Envoy Extraordinary, Something Beautiful for God, and A Third Testament. Neither film nor magnetic recording tape is stable in the longer archives of the BBC. In order to preserve film footage, transfer to digital media is essential, but in practice this is limited by budgets and the assessment of the likely commercial demand. Not always the best way to assess the archival merit, weighing up religious documentaries against episodes of on the buses. We have to work hard to get old film and tape footage transferred to DVD, and sometimes we have better success with the British Film Institute than with the BBC. Incidentally, it was sometimes wrongly thought that my uncle made a personal journey of faith from agnostic to ardent believer. Total certainty in one's Christian faith can be elusive, but I think from his writing that very early on he realised that earthly life could not possibly be the end. That there was an eternal and spiritual quality to our lives too, At Selwyn College, Cambridge, he was fortunate to come under the influence and encouragement of his close friend and mentor, Alec Vidler. He certainly considered for a time, under Vidler's persuasion, the possibility of joining the Anglican Church as a priest. Dr Vidler went on to become a prominent Anglican theologian. Not secure enough in his faith, Malcolm found himself unable to commit. He was not ready for such a step. What he would have made of his niece instead becoming a member of clergy in the Church of England remains a matter of some conjecture. He died before women were able to be ordained as priests. I find it interesting that my uncle found truth, a faith in a living Jesus, reflected in artistic excellence. For instance, in his writing he often refers to the beauty of the words of the Book of Common Prayer or the King James Bible, To the great art directly inspired by religious belief, to the beauty of music, to the soaring architecture of our cathedrals, he viewed all these manifestations of excellence as divinely inspired, the reaction, behaviour and attitude of a people who over two millennia and more have been spiritually and specifically nourished by belief in the Incarnation. And this brought him to full realisation as a Christian finding christ's purpose for us beautifully and comprehensively expressed through the words of the bible we die in knowledge of christ so that we might live perhaps the timing of his coming to faith was particularly fortunate for me since it was while still in my teens in the early 60s that i came to know my uncle well by then he had taken up a distinctly ascetic rural life at Park Cottage in Robertsbridge. I knew him to be a devout Christian, someone that gently steered and influenced me towards a close association with the church and eventually into religious ministry, albeit in my case fully comfortable remaining within the Church of England. It was contact with this modern prophet of our times that helped bring me along my own personal spiritual journey to ordination, and I know it was contact with him that inspired others, many likewise visiting him in Robertsbridge. He was an uncle with immense depth of thought. His philosophy on life and afterlife were largely shaped by saints, St. Saint Francis, St. Augustine, and St. Paul, although William Blake, Simone Weil, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were also influential. He was truly fascinated by them and they crop up repeatedly in his writing. It is not so surprising that he discovered a modern-day saint of his own, the Albanian nun Mother Teresa, working for God in the squalor and deprivation of Calcutta. If Malcolm, through his writing, had a considerable influence on others, Mother Teresa certainly had the most powerful and profound influence on him, leading him through constant encouragement into membership of a church. By invitation I attended her beatification with my cousin John. As president of the Malcolm Muggeridge Society, which I established on the occasion of the centenary in 2003, I have in turn had the pleasure to meet a remarkably large number of journalists, eminent churchmen, media celebrities, and ordinary men and women on both sides of the Atlantic and as far afield as Egypt, India and Australia, whose lives were touched and changed by my uncle. I have also met with actors, writers, painters, cartoonists and sculptors. And today, 25 years after his death, there remains a surprisingly large following of Mugridge worldwide, albeit diminishing slowly with the passage of time and the death of those that knew him best. On being interviewed in later life, Malcolm was frequently asked what he most wanted in the short time that remained to him. He would answer, I should like my light to shine even if only very fitfully, like a match struck in a dark cavernous night and then flickering out. Left somewhat by default after his death to hold the flame in my late uncle's memory, I have encouraged that flame to burn ever more brightly in keeping both the literary and broadcast legacy alive. In my view, his writing and broadcasts have provided not just that momentary flicker he hoped for, but a bright and shining light. Faced with so much darkness in the world today, it struck me that we all need every bit of extra illumination from wherever it derives.